Where did the idea that the atonement is an at-one-ment come from? This is one of six episodes in our podcast series based on the book entitled Hugh Nibley Observed. Most Latter-day Saints understand that the English word atonement literally means at-one-ment. But did you know that this insight came from a BYU scholar named Hugh Nibley? and that he connected the idea directly to temple ritual in ancient Israel. Astonishingly, the word atonement appears only once in the New Testament, specifically in Romans chapter 5, verse 11. Everywhere else in the New Testament, including twice elsewhere in this verse, the same Greek word is translated as reconciliation instead of atonement. According to Nibley, the term could also be translated as redemption, which literally means to buy back, that is, to reacquire something you owned previously. So when the scriptures speak of atonement, it is always reconciliation, redemption, resurrection, release, and so on. All refer to a return to a former state, a happier condition, such as the one we enjoyed in the pre-mortal life when we were not separated from God by sin. In Old Testament times, the purpose of the temple was to undo our separation from God. According to Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verse 23, Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. While the word atonement appears only once in the New Testament, Nibley tells us that it occurs 127 times in the Old Testament. And of those 127 times, All but five occur in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, where they explicitly describe the original temple rites on the Day of Atonement. Hugh Nibley discovered a connection between the word atonement and the Israelite tabernacle, a large tent that served as a portable temple. When people imagine what went on there, they usually think about animal sacrifice. But Nibley realized that the purpose of sacrifice was to prepare people to meet the Lord within the sacred tent. That's why the Lord called the tabernacle a tent of meeting. As the Lord says in Exodus, I will meet you at the door of the tent of the testimony, on which occasion I shall make myself known to you that I might converse with you. In the rites performed by the high priest on the day of atonement, he returns to the Holy of Holies, which represents the spirit world upon which he was created in the beginning. Having been purified from all sin through the Redeemer, the separation of spiritual and temporal death is overcome. He can once again enter the presence of God and converse with Him face to face. According to Nibley, the basic word for atonement in the languages of the ancient Near East is related to the actions of becoming one symbolically in temple ritual. He concludes that the symbolism of atonement is certainly related to the Egyptian hepit. This word represents the common ritual embrace written with the ideogram of embracing arms. Nowhere is this imagery more clear than in the Book of Mormon, where the word atonement appears 39 times. Nephi's poetic account of his spiritual rescue draws parallels between the Lord's welcoming embrace within the tabernacle tent of meeting and desert custom of welcoming endangered wanderers into the safety of the family tent. Wrote Hugh Nibley, It was the custom for one fleeing for his life in the desert to seek protection in the tent of a great sheik, crying out, Ana Dakulika, 
meaning, I am thy suppliant. Whereupon the host would place the hem of his robe over the guest's shoulder and declare him under his protection. In one instance in the Book of Mormon, we see Nephi fleeing from an evil enemy that is pursuing him. In great danger, he prays the Lord to give him an open road in the low way to block his pursuers and to make them stumble. He comes to the Lord as a suppliant. O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? As found in 2 Nephi chapter 4, verse 33. In reply, and according to ancient custom, the master would then place the hem of his robe protectively over the kneeling man's shoulder, or kafata. This puts him under the Lord's protection from all enemies. They embrace in a close hug, as Arab chiefs still do. The Lord makes a place for him, see Alma chapter 5 verse 24, and invites him to sit down beside him. Through this act, they are at one. Nibley concludes with this observation about the Book of Mormon. It has often been claimed that the Book of Mormon cannot contain the fullness of the gospel, since it does not mention the temple ordinances. As a matter of fact, they are alluded to everywhere in the book if we know where to look for them, and the dozen or so discourses on the atonement in the Book of Mormon are replete with temple imagery. From all the Semitic variations of kafar, for example, we conclude that the literal meaning of the term is a close and intimate embrace which took place at the kaporet, or the front cover or flap of the tabernacle or tent. The Book of Mormon instances are quite clear. Quote, Behold, he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them, and he saith, Repent, and I will receive you. End quote. Alma chapter 5, verse 33. Next, quote, Behold, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. End quote. 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 15. To be redeemed is to be atoned. From this it should be clear what kind of oneness is meant by the atonement. It is being received by the Lord in a close embrace of the returning prodigal son, expressing not only forgiveness, but oneness of heart and mind that amounts to identity, like a literal family identity. No wonder, as Robert Millet expressed in the book Hugh Nibley observed, quote, If anyone understood why the gospel of Jesus Christ was good news or glad tidings, Hugh Nibley did. In fact, he seemed to have little patience with those of us who lose track of that good news because of other, much less important news. He was persuaded that because of what Jesus did for us, we have every reason to live in an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. We are commanded to be joyful, for Christ has borne our sorrows, he said. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so that we need not be. Our own sins and limitations are the things that make us sad. He had no sins and limitations. He was not sad for his sake, but wholly for ours. Only one could suffer for others who did not deserve to suffer for himself. If we remain gloomy, Nibley continued, after what Jesus did for us, it is because we do not accept what he did for us. If we suffer, we deserve to suffer because there is no need for it if we only believe in him. 
Hugh Nibley's deep interest in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ led him to many discoveries of importance to Latter-day Saints. The book Hugh Nibley Observed tells the story of the man and his work. For more information, visit interpreterfoundation.org forward slash books.